0: you for listening to season two of spotless breaking the boundaries of television presented by two media powerhouses triple lift and advertising week spotless brings you in-depth conversations with the leaders who are driving this evolution so you know listen up evolution we came from monkeys now we're humans who knows where we are next you're going to learn something on this podcast
1: Lisa Holm is Group SVP of Content and Commercial Strategy for Discovery, Inc., leading programming and partnerships for Discovery's direct-to-consumer streaming service, Discovery+. Plus. In this role, Holm oversees the editorial vision for Discovery's D2C offerings, working closely with the company's content and programming teams to source original content and license third-party programming. She also helps structure and negotiate distribution deals for streaming products with the goal of driving subscriber growth. Prior to joining Discovery Home led the investigation and strategy for Hulu's international expansion, which followed several years of leading Hulu's content acquisition team, where she negotiated critical content deals to help expand the service from zero to roughly 30 million subscribers. Before joining Hulu's acquisitions team in 2010, Lisa worked in creative at Illumination Entertainment and as a consultant in McKinsey and Company's media and entertainment technology and telecom practices. Welcome to Spotless, Lisa. Thanks for joining us.
0: Thanks for having me,
1: Lisa. For starters, congratulations! Lots of big news out of Discovery uh, recently. So, congrats on the the merger with Warner Media. One of the most exciting deals in in recent memory in media. I know it's early days still, but can you give us any insight on what this means for Discovery Plus?
0: It's super exciting news. The folks at Warner Media are outstanding people, and they've got truly, truly amazing brands and IP under the uh, under the tent. So. I can say I'm very excited about it, potentially happening, and otherwise probably pretty much too soon to say. (laughs) Well, we look forward for
1: uh, more to come then, perhaps on a future episode of Spotless. Lisa, tell us a little bit about your career for our audience. So after spending nearly a decade at Hulu and now launching Discovery+, Plus, you've been an integral piece to the evolution of two incredible media companies. Tell us about your career as a whole. Walk us through it and how you got to the place you're at today.
0: Sure. My original aim was to be a producer of Broadway shows. So I've strayed from that path uh, a bit, but really, I mean, I think I've focusing on the last sort of decade or so I've kind of grown up in and with streaming. It was barely a thing that people were doing when I joined Hulu back in 2010. And so watching how rapidly that has has changed and evolved and kind of disrupted how people consume content and and certainly the media companies how they distribute content has been has been very cool um from a from a career perspective i think i've been fortunate to a few times over step into extremely high growth early stage companies and or departments within companies taking on roles that Nobody was doing before me. And I always, as a sort of career advice, give that to people. If you can find a job that doesn't exist until you yourself fill it, that's usually a good sign that that something's growing quickly and that you can grow quickly with it. So that was true at Discovery, it was true at Hulu, it was true at Illumination. Before that, I managed to kind of get in while we were still and Startup mode, trying to figure things out, answer a lot of big, hard, hairy questions, and that's definitely my preferred stage of company. I think it's so fun to be there in the kind of building formation part.
1: Uh, that's great advice, and you've done, you know, kudos on a great career. You've done a great job managing it. I wonder if you might add a little bit more to it. You know, we like to think that there are all sorts of different listeners of the podcast across the industry, but a lot of people too that are trying to like break into the industry. So, like, when you think about women joining media nowadays, like entry level type approach. Do you have any advice for young women trying to break into the industry?
0: I mean, I think a a handful of things come to mind. One is that the industry more and more is going in the digital and direct consumer direction. And one of the real hallmarks of direct-to-consumer is big data. Having access to so much information about your content, your consumer, how your consumer is consuming your content, how they found it in the first place. And so what might sound like weird advice, but for somebody early stage in their career, getting comfortable with data and quantitative analysis, I think is a skill that is probably a real hallmark of the last 10 years, next several decades in media that may not have been quite as critical as the skill set several decades ago. So if you're an undergrad or kind of early stage career, trying to uh, figure out how to interpret data, how to manipulate data, I think is is a critical skill. The other thing, once you find yourself in a role, just really over-delivering. There are lots of people who want to be in the industry, be hungry, over-deliver, do everything that's asked of you and more. I think work has a bit of a magnetic force towards people who are really capable and competent. So be one of those people. And I think the uh, the work will find you.
1: That's spectacular advice, Lisa. Thank you. I want to talk about Discovery Plus. So Discovery Plus has really just launched a few months ago, has had tremendous streaming numbers already. Could you tell us about some of the successes and the challenges that you faced around the launch of the new service?
0: Sure. I think... For a new consumer product launching, you have a lot of work to do to explain what is this to a consumer and why should you want it? And we, we grappled a lot with what should the product be called, ultimately landed on Discovery Plus, given the tremendous brand equity in the word discovery. But early on, we knew one of the big things that we would have to overcome as a challenge is explaining to people what's inside the plus people didn't necessarily know that Food Network or HETV or TLC or ID had anything to do with discovery. And so early on, it was really kind of leaning into those channel brands to try to explain to people, it's when you think of discovery channel, you probably have some associations that might have to do with animals and the planet and adventure. And so the, the first task was really teaching people, we are more than that. And now I think, We're kind of a few months post-launch, we announced having hit over 15 million paying subscribers globally across the whole direct-to-consumer discovery portfolio, really rapid growth since our launch uh, in the U.S. in January and transition of of some other markets to Discovery Plus internationally. And so now it's really about how do we surprise and delight the consumer every single day, get them to open the app as often as possible, and once they're there, make sure they're finding something they want to watch. And so one of the things we've spent a lot of time talking about from a content perspective, something that Discovery does incredibly well is the sort of comfort programming. Turn it on and watch hours and hours and hours of your food shows, your home shows of 90 Day Fiance. We have content that is extremely, extremely watchable. The bar is much higher when we come in now and trying to make content that is the most compelling, the most interesting, something that people will tune into with much more intentionality. So we've spent a lot of time talking about that from a content perspective.
1: So there's a a lot to unpack there. I wanna take a couple different things you said and dig in a little bit. So first of which is having launched a service when there are major D2C services already out there. One of the things that everyone speculates about with the streaming wars in general is the notion of subscription fatigue, right? That we might top out on a certain number of services. How did you approach that as like kind of a late entrant and what what are the kind of your philosophy and what are your thoughts on things like subscription fatigue?
0: I think it's real. I feel it as a consumer. Consumers have a very different emotional relationship with a subscription product that they know will hit their bill every month than they do with sort of single transactions. I might not bat an eye at a $5 coffee, but I might wring hands about whether A service that I could spend hours with every day is worth $5 a month or $10 a month. There is a different kind of psychology associated with it. Frankly, it's, I think the sort of being the the upstart has been something that I've, I would say in the last 10 years, have sort of always been thinking about because while Hulu is an established player now, as Hulu was growing, the same questions, everybody already has Netflix. Why did they need Hulu on top? was, Was certainly a question then. I think one of the things we did in the context of discovery plus was try to be really thoughtful about the price because as a pure play unscripted service, we are a great part of the overall streaming portfolio. But we don't necessarily expect to be the only streaming product in the home for a lot of people. And so the expectation of someone adding us on top of what they already have was certainly one of the things that we thought in how we priced it so that it could be really economical and affordable for people to make it part of their portfolio. You know, I think one of the things you're starting to see more and more of is people trying to solve the subscription fatigue problem on behalf of consumers whether that's the kind of Amazon Prime channels content ingest model, where you go to a single device platform and open a single app. And there's lots of content from across different apps, all inside or universal search on some device platforms. I can't remember which streaming service that show is on, but I'll just search for it. And the device platform will figure it out for me. Uh, and you're also starting to increasingly see bundles together, whether that's Verizon and Discovery Plus or Disney, Hulu, and ESPN together, trying to you know make it as sort of everybody's got challenges to their own business models, but still with, an I think, an aim to making it a little bit easier for the consumer rather than managing half a dozen or more individual subscription services.
1: You alluded to this just before, but I'm curious to get your take on like, what's the future of channels, right? You mentioned like how some of the brands within Discovery Plus are so important. And I know you've taken on challenges like at Hulu with the, the FX portfolio within Hulu, right? Could you talk a little bit about what you perceive like the future of channels are?
0: I think of channels in a way as the kind of organizing principle for the consumer to help them sort through what might I want to watch. And that helps you, it gives you some information of, is this a thing I might be interested in watching?
1: Discovery has some great shows. You talked about binge watching earlier. And I noted that I think the statistics now are that the average time spent on the Discovery Plus service is over three hours. So really kind of like underscoring this notion that the content is binge watching uh, worthy. TV's at an interesting inflection point right now where we have most of streaming content being accessed in an on-demand environment and then some through kind of linear program channels. Have you thought about porting that experience to the streaming world? And and how do you think about like what the future of lean back programming looks like?
0: Yeah, I think our content is incredibly well-suited to that type of lean back experience. Sometimes people just have decision fatigue and the endless scroll through seas of tiles trying to decide what to watch can be exhausting and so we we did launch uh in january a handful of about half a dozen no sorry a dozen virtual channels that is that that kind of lean back experience turn on the house hunters channel and just let it wash over you it will pick an episode for you you will join it halfway through in a very kind of retro, just like real TV uh, type experience that is not at all personalized to you. And people have really engaged with those as well. I think our content is very, very well suited to that. So I think you will see us expand that as a part of the offering over time, just to help people uh, spend time with us however they want to, whether that's on demand where they're truly choosing to watch Queen of Meth, a, a sort of full, uh, full intentional true crime docuseries, or just the, let me, allow me to be lazy and lean back and don't make me think too hard. So hopefully we can serve both of those consumer needs.
1: I know it's early stage, but do you have any data? Do you have any insights you can share on When consumers opt into the one experience versus the next, is it a day part thing? Is it a specific type of consumer? Is it around particular kinds of content where you choose that lean back experience versus on-demand?
0: Well, so we've seen a couple of things so far. One is that when a show is really, really popular, it's really popular in a number of different ways of distributing it. So 90 Day Fiance is a mega show for us on TLC Network. On Discovery Plus on demand, and also the virtual channel of Ninety Day Fiance. So a super super popular show, people are going to watch in a lot of different ways. Other than that, I think we see Homicide Hunter and uh, another true crime shows doing quite well on that kind of lean back experience, uh, which also mimics what we see in the traditional ecosystem where ID has some of the longest tune time of any network on uh, on the dial. And then you know some of those shows where each episode is has a very familiar format, like a House Hunters or a House Hunters International. That's a, that's another place where we see people spending a lot of time.
1: So with all this kind of content you mentioned, 90 Day Fiance, Fixer Upper, these kind of like binge watching worthy shows, how important going forward do you think original content is versus? really having a big and diverse library of content? How do you think about those two things? Are they competing with each other? You know, is there a balance that you strike to try to strike?
0: I mean, I think what you'll see uh, on Discovery Plus and really every streaming platform is this combination of the two where just having library content isn't enough to make me feel like it's special. I needed to add it on top everything we hear from consumers when they're talking about how they evaluate new streaming services is what can I get there that I can't get anywhere else? What can I get there that's new and exclusive to the platform? That's a, a major driver in consumers' decision-making about which streaming services they want to use. But then once they're there, most of the services you see a majority of the uh, programming driving the you know hours of engagement, that three hours a day that we talked about is the entire catalog. So we have over 55,000 episodes available on Discovery Plus. And while we have a couple hundred hours of originals, which we're incredibly proud of being able to produce that much, particularly during the pandemic, several hundred episodes, hard for that to drive as much watching as tens of thousands of episodes. So I think you need the original content to get people in the door, and then you need the deep library to keep them there and keep them using it, keep them engaged in between your bursts of originals that they may be interested in.
1: I want to talk a little bit about, you just mentioned programming during the pandemic. Are there specific themes that you called out or, you know, research that you saw that helped you kind of program things differently, specifically during the COVID-19 period?
0: I do think we've been in a very fortunate position within Discovery that people have been stuck at home and having to cook for themselves and turning to Food Network to figure out how to do that and sort of looking around their, their walls and their yards and saying, hmm, if I'm going to be spending a lot of time here, maybe I should do some home improvement and turning to HGTV for that. So I think we've we've served as a really kind of important utility and, and comfort sort of companion for folks during the pandemic that, uh, you know, hopefully helps people through what's been obviously a very tough year. The other thing I'm really proud of is, and I think it has to do with really being the home of unscripted entertainment, is how much creativity was applied to staying in production. And so we have a show called 90 Day Diaries. We sent cameras to the 90 day cast and they filmed themselves and then just sent us the footage and we made a show out of it. Or Guy Fieri who normally does diners, drive-ins and dives where he goes to a restaurant. Restaurants were shipping him the ingredients and he cooked it himself in his backyard with his son filming him. And it was, you know, I think enabled a degree of authenticity and intimacy that is unique in, uh, in unscripted that I think you can do. And so we managed to really stay safely in production pretty much throughout.
1: That's great. Again, congratulations um, amazing work in that regard. Can you give us a sense as we're kind of like emerging from the pandemic now, like what's around the corner? Are there any shows or projects that you want to share with us that are coming up?
0: There are a couple really fun ones coming up. We're launching a show called Pushing the Line. It will be our first 4K original and shot in these beautiful national parks, incredible eye candy and visuals following this group of extremely adventurous and adrenaline junkie 20-somethings who string up a slack line, which is like a tightrope, but looser, and walk across ravines that are hundreds of feet high and hundreds of feet wide, incredibly death defying uh, sort of adrenaline pumping activities. And then of course they, uh, you know, cut loose uh, with each other back at base camp. I'm very, very excited about that show. And then coming up a little bit later in the year, we've got a true crime show about the Chippendales, which I'm also very, very excited about. Not a lot of people just kind of know it as the SNL sketch. But as it turns out, there's an unbelievable backstory behind the founding of, the, of that group. And the founders maybe weren't so nice to each other, uh, but it's a, a little known story. And I'm very excited to, to bring that to the world.
1: So you've mentioned a couple of different genres, right, that Discovery really kind of owns, right? So the cooking category, true crime. Are there other genres that you're looking at than doing development work in? Are there other kinds of things that you see emerging?
0: There are a couple of things we've done to try to distinguish the original content on Discovery Plus from what we do on our networks. One of them is the genre mashup. So it shows that you might expect to see kind of in between two of our networks, but not really on them. So I'll name another one, a spinoff of our big survival show on Discovery, Naked and Afraid. We're doing Naked and Afraid of Love as a survival dating format, um, which is I'm super, super excited about. So I think genre mashups, sort of combining things that you don't normally see in one show as a way of innovating um, is one really exciting area. And another one that we're spending a lot of energy on is documentary film, that where people watch documentaries more and more really is on streaming services, not on cable networks. So we licensed uh, introducing Selma Blair out of the film festivals earlier this year, and we'll launch that later this year, an unbelievable story about Selma and with a really, really talented first-time filmmaker. So documentary film is another big area of investment for us, which also, you know, I mentioned at at the top of this, the idea of trying to lean into the plus and explain to people what's in the plus plus. Um, and documentary film, we think is a really good way of doing that, of making it clear that what you get on discovery plus is more than, and different to what you might get if you are a cable subscriber. And so there's a reason to have both.
1: First of all, um, lots of amazing projects on the horizon. So we look forward to that. But when you are thinking about programming discovery plus, how do you think about the competition? Like, are you trying to draw lines between other streaming services?
0: I think the thing that distinguishes Discovery most plainly is that we are the single best home for unscripted real life storytelling anywhere on the world. And so the focus on true crime or the focus on food or the focus on animals that we have is bar none. You talk to any of the execs at, at our networks, they've seen every paranormal pitch, every true crime pitch that anybody has ever done. We might be releasing a true crime show a week, every week, year round, even other folks that do true crime. It, you know, it might be one a quarter. So there is such a depth of expertise and wealth of knowledge about our genres. And I think a lot of producers like working with us again and again, because we get into a rhythm with them and they know, you know, if this works, we'll do more with them because of that focus on, on unscripted in our genres.
1: I want to shift gears a little bit, mostly because I'm a fan, but I also think is as kind of a media walk, one of the, most exciting little brands within media over the last 15 or 20 years is the despicables characters. (laughs) So uh, (laughs) I wanted to ask you about like how, like tell us a little bit about your work with Illumination and, and, and your work on that franchise.
0: That was so fun. When I joined the company, they had just bought a pitch that at the time was known as evil me. And we just suspected we were likely going to have to change that title. But there was this beautifully illustrated book um, that had grew the villain and and the little girls that he adopted. And when I joined, it was in in the vis dev phase or visual development. So every day we were getting unbelievable drawings and concept art, character designs, what the worlds and the settings were going to look like. Unbelievable artists like Carter Goodrich was designing the characters and the the artists at McGuff, the animation studio in Paris, And the thing that always makes me giggle about that franchise that I don't think is that well-known is that the minions weren't in it at first. They weren't in the pitch that they weren't even in the script storyboard artists were sort of taking some creative license and, you know, drew the minions into some of the panels and everyone at the company just fell in love with them. And, you know, they've become such the hallmark of that franchise. I think what would that have been had had the minions not arrived on the scene, they're so cute and so hilarious and really appeal to kind of everybody, but but they came along kind of later in the film's life. So, you know, I think a great, great sort of testament to the creative process and the collaboration and contributions of so many different people.
1: Another franchise. It's amazing. It's totally different, but it's an amazing franchise. It's Shark Week. And right about, I think, the time when this podcast will probably drop is the new season. Is there anything you could tell us about the new upcoming season, any kind of twists or turns and evolution of the franchise?
0: Listeners can't see me, but if you could, you would see the stuffed shark over my shoulder, (laughs) uh, which I have perched to get into the mood for Shark Week. This will be the biggest Shark Week ever. We're doing a raft of specials for Discovery Channel and our first ever Shark Week series for Discovery Plus as a Discovery Plus original, as well as Shark Week specials on Discovery Plus. So there will be more sharks than ever this year. (laughs) Some fun celebrities, uh, some very dangerous stunts being pulled uh, with sharks. It will be pretty great.
1: Fantastic. Well, we're really looking forward to that, Lisa. So I'd like to wrap up our conversation. We usually like to end with a prediction of the future. This is a podcast about the future of the television industry. So looking at all the kind of like trends that you're looking at, what do you think the industry? Let's say, what five years from now? What does the industry look like? Who are the key players? What are people watching? You know, what's new? What's happening with advertising?
0: I think you'll continue to see consolidation, whether that's of of streaming services or of companies. I think the the great unbundling that consumers may be asked for. I think isn't quite quite the simplicity that it's the kind of old cable bundle provided. So I do think you will see a, an increasing trend towards bundling and consolidation. You mentioned advertising, which I think will see incredible growth and evolution. Where you know I think you'll start to see more and more ad formats, more and more kind of innovation in the pause ad, the binge ad, all of these special things that help make advertising more and more relevant to a consumer, less disruptive and less intrusive. And I think there will be some pretty exciting evolution in that space as well.
1: Well, we look forward to uh, uh, touching base with you again when the time comes. Lisa, thank you so much for joining us in the Spotless podcast. We really enjoyed the conversation.
0: Thank you so much for having me.